The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 64. Scylla and Coria. Let us summarise the story of Korea up to the 7th century. The Korean peninsula didn't actually form until after modern humans migrated to the area. As sea levels rose, the Japanese islands were separated from the Asian mainland and the Yellow Sea formed which caused a peninsula of land to become isolated from the mainland, apart from a 100-mile stretch of land at its north, which allowed migrations in and out of the peninsula. The first societies of the peninsula embraced pottery, agriculture and aquaculture. This would have been followed in the 1st century BCE by metallurgy and significantly bronze-working. It may have been during this period that the first polity of significant note emerged, referred to by the name Kochosan, which is believed to have dominated the area in and around the Laodong Peninsula, which is now on the Chinese side of the North Korean border. Kochosan would have had a convenient maritime trade link from the Liaodong Peninsula to the Shandong Peninsula and consequently the heartland of Chinese cultures, which would aid the wealth and subsequent modernisation of the Kochosan state. Chinese aggression towards Kochosan in around 300 BCE pushed Kochosan into the north of the actual Korean peninsula. During this time, the societies in the south of the peninsula were living a much simpler life than the modernising state of Kochosan, but migrations would bring modern culture such as ironmongery, weaponry and politics to the south. The beginnings of the Han states would emerge in the south of the peninsula as a consequence. Kochosan in the north was also exposed to the nomadic ways of life of the Hyongnu peoples of the steppelands and with this came the opportunity to learn about horsemanship and the use of cavalry in armies. Battles for supremacy over the lands in and around the north of the peninsula and their fruitful trade routes were frequent between the resident 
Kochoson and the great imperial movements of China. Kochoson collapsed at the end of the 2nd century BCE and the Chinese moved in, but their resources were stretched which allowed the local people of the northern peninsula to try to resist Chinese dominance. The Han societies in the south retained their independence, but a new confederation of tribes were incorporated in the north, which came to be known as Kokoria. Cultural aspects and literary legend connects these people to the nomadic Puya people, from the steppe lands to their north. After the collapse of the Han dynasty of China, China would enter a comparative dark age and this would give the societies of Korea the opportunity to develop by themselves. Korea expanded significantly, dominating the north of the peninsula and great swathes of land to the north. The kingdoms of Pekje in the west of the peninsula and Silla in the east of the peninsula developed significantly from within the Han states in the south and a confederacy of small states known as Kaya emerged in the far south. This was the development of the Three Kingdoms period of Korean history. During the 4th century, the influence of Buddhism had migrated to Korea and had been embraced by Kokoria and Pekche. Kokoria remained the most politically advanced kingdom of the three. Pekche's location meant that it could develop strong ties with the Imperial Court of Japan and it would use this influence to take a position of dominance over the kingdom of Silla. This desire to keep Silla weak only served to allow the powerful Kokoria to annex Silla. Kokoria would also push Pekche into the south so that it would take control of the prosperous Han River system. This pushed Pekche and Silla into an unlikely alliance with each other to neutralise Kokoria power and influence and then fight back against Kokoria's southward expansion. The alliance successfully pushed Kokoria back out of the Han River system, but when Pekche believed that it had regained the mouth of the river, Silla attacked Pekche and took control of the river system for itself. Now Silla had gone from the weakest of the three kingdoms to the most powerful. Kokoria was still very powerful and it did not accept the loss of its lands lightly. And the 7th century saw Kokoria and Silla battling for the important river system. The difference maker was when Tang China, an enemy of Kokoria, struck up an alliance with the kingdom of Silla, which gave Silla the necessary power to conquer both Pekche and Kokoria in turn and become the sole polity of the Korean Peninsula. And this is where we left the previous episode. Northern and Southern States period Silla was able to prosper in the peninsula because 
Once their alliance with Tang China had achieved its aims, Tang China had ambitions of subjugating the entire Korean peninsula which the Kingdom of Silla defied. And Tang China, with no local allies and supply lines stretched, had to give up on their objective and return to China. Thanks to this inability of Tang China to influence Korean fortunes, the Kingdom of Silla spent the 8th century consolidating itself and developing into a well-cultured nation with Buddhist monks doing a lot for academia. There is a lot of speculation among historians about the exact nature of what happened next in the expanse of territory left behind by the collapsed Kokoria nation-state. A new polity called Palhae emerged in the north, but much further north than the peninsula, in the heart of Manchuria, a place where a people called the Mohei resided. The Mohei would have been a largely tribal and somewhat nomadic people, so the creators of the polity are believed to be the remnants of the Kokori estate, and so even though the population of Palhae were Mohei, the nobility are described as Kokoria in origin. Some historians claim that the nation of Palhae shouldn't be described as Korean, as it's closer to Chinese or Manchurian in its character. But the main consensus is that it can be considered as part of Korea's history. Indeed, the expansion of the Palhae state brought it to the northern borders of Silla and has led to this period being referred to as the Northern and Southern States period. During the last episode, we described the basis of the bone rank system, which effectively dictated who was eligible to rule and who was not. Those of the Songol, or sacred bone class, were the only ones permitted to rule. With Silla standing by this principle, it created friction between the rulers and the nobility, who were not legally permitted to rule and as such were prevented from taking power when their king may have been inept. And this situation seemed to weaken the kingdom from within. The friction turned into open rebellion against the ruling class and this would initially reawaken the energy of the descendants of the subjugated Pekje, who linked up with some of the Silla Jingo, who were the true bone class of the bone rank system, which meant that they were not able to rule. However, the situation had become so grim in Silla, with corruption in the royal court and famine in the countryside, that something needed to be done. Therefore, a breakaway kingdom formed in the area of the former kingdom of Pekje, which is called Hubekje, which translates as later Pekje. That wasn't all, as a very similar thing happened with descendants of the kingdom of Kokoria, who also linked up with disgruntled Silla nobles and formed a breakaway kingdom in the traditional northern peninsula lands occupied by the Kokoria. Initially, the breakaway state was called Korea, but its final name was Taebong, and historians often retrospectively refer to it as such. 
with the re-emergence of states based on the former states of Pekche and Kokoria alongside Silla, historians refer to this as the later Three Kingdoms period. With Silla now a kingdom in trouble, much warfare was seen during this period. In the year 918, a man called Wang Gong became the ruler of Taebong. He changed the name of the kingdom to Korea, and taking advantage of the decayed kingdom of Silla, he was able to reunify the three kingdoms again, but this time it would be as Korea, and the prominent Silla nobles were invited to take important political positions in Korea. Wang Gon would become the first ruler of the unified state of Korea, and he would introduce examinations for those wanting to enter civil service, which was something that the Chinese had been doing since the existence of the Han dynasty of China many centuries before, and something we discussed in Volume 3. The steppe lands far away to the north were now occupied by the Chitam peoples, who were comparatively nomadic and believed to have been, in part, descended from the Xianbei. The Chitan people attacked the state of Palhae, and this led to Palhae's collapse. And there would be a flow of people southwards into Korea. The refugees were welcomed by Korea. Korea. Korea is a word that we Romanize G-O-R-Y-E-O. But of course it is the word that has evolved to our English word for Korea. The name of Korea for the ancient kingdom would suggest that this is a retrospective name, using the name Korea as the basis of the name in the same way that Kochosan means ancient Chosun, but sources say that the country of Kokoria was actually called Kokoria and the name was subsequently shortened to Korea. The original re-emergence of this state of Korea was somewhat precarious in its administrative setup. On one hand, the king needed to maintain a central authority over the entire peninsula, but on the other hand, individual and local tribal leaders needed to maintain an element of power to prevent rebellion. Civil service examinations meant that free men could attain significant positions in national politics that may have previously been reserved for the nobility. By the end of the 10th century, Korea had powerful neighbours to its north, a North Chinese dynasty called the Liao, headed by Chitam peoples, the same peoples who had been responsible for the decline of Palhae. The Liao dynasty effectively hemmed Korea into the Korean peninsula. The period of the Korea dynasty in Korea was quite successful and prosperous though. Right from the formation of Korea under Wang Gon in the 10th century, great Buddhist temples were built and with both free men and priests now encouraged to flourish in their own right, wealth, art and academia flourished as well. The first Korean coins were minted under the Korea dynasty. 
It was also under the Korea dynasty that a great number of texts were written, including Samguk Sagi, completed in 1145, written by the Korean noble Kim Busik, which is the earliest Korean chronicle of Korean history, and particularly the Three Kingdoms period, which discussed Kokorea, Pekje and Silla. Much like Japan, there had evolved an administrative class of nobles and a military class of nobles, called the Mumban and the Muban, respectively. As the 12th century grew old, it became clear that the Mumban were attempting to enjoy the spoils of prosperity for themselves. The rich grew richer and the poor grew poorer, and the Muban were increasingly pushed out of national politics. This situation would explode into civil war. The 18th monarch of Korea was King Weijong, and his attitude towards the Muban was portrayed to be highly condescending. At a royal banquet held in 1167, a man called Kim Don Jung, who was actually the son of the author of the Samguk Sagi, used a candle to set fire to the beard of one Chung Chung Bu, a member of the Muban military class. This was symbolic of the jovial attitude that the Muban took towards the Muban, and the Muban had had enough. During a time when the imperial court was only partially occupied by courtiers, Chong stormed the court and murdered most of these courtiers before exiling King Weijong to the island of Koje, just off the southern coast of the Korean peninsula. Another military general called Yi Wei Min would then remove the dethroned King Weijong from the island before breaking his back rolling him in a blanket and then dumping him in a pond to kill him without the shedding of royal blood. This military coup destabilised Korea. There was no honour between the military elite who spent the aftermath betraying each other to attain ultimate power. Rebellion broke out everywhere, with low-class peasants rising up against their overlords. The country was in absolute chaos. The military general called Cho Chong Hun assassinated Yi Wei Min in 1196 and took control of the nation as its military leader and he tried to restore some order to Korea. Cho set up a parallel military government to the civil government already in place, and this is similar in principle to the establishment of the Bakfu in Japan, the court of the shogun which was set up in parallel to the Japanese imperial court. The military administration of Cho strongly observed the Son style of Buddhism, which is comparable to the Zen form of Buddhism observed by the shogunate of Japan. The Kamakura Shogunate of Japan was established just four years before the Cho military regime. Historians cannot fully understand why there appears to be no obvious link between these two almost identical circumstances in both Korea and Japan. The two countries are close to each other. The events were so similar and contemporary to one another. 
But there is nothing to prove that this wasn't a coincidence. It remains a puzzle for historians. Another similarity between Cho military Korea and Kamakura shogunate Japan was the fact that particular demographics of the population would be alienated by the policies of the current regime. In fact, this could be said of most reformists of most nations throughout the world. As policies change, inevitably somebody loses the privileges that they had or somebody begins to suffer. Traditional landowners in Cho military Korea found that their lands were being gifted to the military nobility. So this inevitably brought about revolts. It wasn't peasant revolts which brought the Cho military administration to an end though. That would be down to something different. The Mongols. Every nation in the Far East was profoundly affected by the southward expansion of the Mongols and Korea was one of the first established nations on the Mongols' southern frontier. Initially, the Mongols would send envoys to Korea demanding tribute and although Korea initially entertained the requests, it would not take long before Korea would begin murdering the Mongol envoys and repudiating their agreement with the Mongols. As a Mongol invasion would be imminent, Korea moved its capital city to the island of Kanghua on the Han River estuary to take advantage of the fact that the Mongols had no naval capabilities. From here, Korea would be able to conduct a stout resistance to the Mongol invasions. The Mongols were a powerful military movement, however, and the protracted war between the two nations would often result in Korea agreeing to a peace treaty, which involved Korea paying tribute, and this agreement being dishonoured by Korea in the aftermath. The resistance of Korea to the Mongol invasions was certainly impressive. In fact, it was among the greatest of resistances globally to Mongol invasion. Inevitably, the desire of Korea to defy the Mongols meant that the Mongols came back stronger and more numerous to a point where resistance was futile. Under intense pressure, the cohesiveness of Korea understandably collapsed and Korea fell to the Mongols in the year 1270. All that remained were rebellions organised by military generals who evaded capture, but within three years these had largely been snuffed out as well. Historians state that the Mongols hit Korea without mercy, slaughtering every living thing in their path. The Mongols would ensure that the royal family was re-established in Korea, operating under Mongol control, and the Cho military regime was now extinct. In the time that it took for the Mongols to completely crush Korea, the Mongols had successfully conquered northern China and had expanded westwards all the way to eastern Europe and southwest to control the lands of Persia. The great percentage of steppe lands were under their control and they had also expanded southwards to the southern edge of the Tibetan plateau. 
All of these lands fell to the Mongols before Korea did, further validating the Korea resolve under the greatest of pressures. The Mongols extracted a great deal of the Korean Peninsula's natural resources and their manpower during this period of domination. However, under the Mongols, Korea did maintain a degree of autonomy that was not afforded to northern China, which became the new power base of the Mongols who ruled it as the Yuan Dynasty of China. Intermarriage between Mongols and peoples of Korea was not just restricted to the royal families but also the nobility and this meant that Korea started becoming respected as an important vassal state of Yuan, China. With little naval capability, Yuan, China turned to Korea to construct a navy with which an invasion of Japan could happen. However, as many of you will already know, the kamikaze winds prevented the Mongols from completing this objective. With such a close bond between Yuan, China and Korea came a migration of culture to Korea. Technology and manufacturing techniques enhanced textile production which was great for supporting the fashion culture coming from China to Korea. Academia and literary arts would prosper as new philosophical ideas migrated to the peninsula too. So there were positive aspects to Korea being inextricably linked to Mongol China. It is important to add that there would have likely been a degree of cultural cleansing when the Mongols enter Korea, as their aggressive conquest is likely to have destroyed much of Korea's cultural heritage, and there would have been a desire to replace traditional texts with more modern pro-Mongol texts. Ultimately, during the 14th century, Mongol dominance of China came under challenge from the new Ming dynasty and this weakened the Yuan dynasty of the Mongols and undermined the confidence of the people of Korea in the Mongols. The ruling family of Korea was still the House of Wang, which had been established by Wang Gon in the year 918, something we mentioned earlier in the episode. The 31st ruler in the line was King Kongmin, who came to the throne in the year 1351. Kongmin spent his younger years as a hostage in the Yuan dynasty's court, and this was commonplace during the period of Mongol dominance as a means to maintain Korea's loyalty. Kongmin was an intelligent academic, maybe learning much while at the Yuan court as a youngster. He was married to a Mongol princess called Noguk, who was his loyal wife, even when Kongmin came to the throne and shared many people's anti-Mongol sentiments. He immediately began to eradicate anything to do with Mongol culture, showing a very definite political stance. Kongmin's end goal was to free Korea from Mongol influence and stand up against the military nobles of Korea who wanted to regain power for themselves. His work was undermined by the marauding Red 
turbans, a Mongolic movement who believed that Mongolic lands should be under Mongolic rule and not under the rule of fundamentally Chinese people, who we often refer to ethnically as Han people. The red turbans saw Korea as somewhere worth invading, as well as they did Yuan China. So Kongmin was distracted from his goals by the red turbans, but he was successful in repelling them. Kongmin and his wife also had to try very hard to produce an heir to the throne, and when she did eventually fall pregnant, she died during childbirth and the king was inconsolable. His passion for anything on a political scale disappeared and he devoted all of his time pining for his wife via Buddhist rituals. One of the military generals who was praised for resisting the red turban invasion of Korea was a man called Yi Song-gye. After the red turbans had been dealt with, Korea faced subsequent problems with pro-Mongol rebellions who refused to accept the reforms of King Kongmin, and from Woku, who were the Japanese pirates looking to ravage the coasts of the Korean peninsula, as well as the coastal areas of Japan and China also. Yi Song-gye was an integral part of the successful battles against the pro-Mongol factions and the Woku. The Yuan dynasty of China collapsed in 1368, which allowed the Ming to take control. The Ming dynasty moved quickly to secure areas of Manchuria, which bordered the northern frontier of Korea. And although there did exist a pro-Ming faction within Korea, the presence of such a mighty neighbour was hugely disconcerting for Korea especially as they were still shaking off the shackles of Mongol overlordship. General Yi Song-gye was generally sympathetic to the Ming cause, but when the Ming sent envoys into Korea to demand they hand over their northernmost territories, King Wu of Korea refused and prepared to do battle with the Ming over the occupation of the strategically important Liaodong Peninsula. In 1388, King Wu would deploy General Yi under protest to do battle with the Ming. General Yi went to Weewa Island, which is an inland island created by the Yalu River. This point of the Yalu River marks the modern border between China and North Korea with Weewa Island within the North Korean border. It also represents the crossing point from Korea to the Liaodong Peninsula. When General Yi reached the island, he decided that his intentions were different to those of his king, so he turned his army back and marched on the Korea capital city of Gaegyong, which is the modern North Korean special city of Kaesong. He would instigate a coup d'etat, which would eventually depose the last king of Korea in 1392 and end the Wang dynasty, which had ruled Korea for over 450 years. 
there was the matter of the rulers of Korea being approved by the Mandate of Heaven, which was originally a Chinese concept of spiritual validation of the current monarch. So General Yi would have to campaign hard to convince the people of Korea that the Wang monarchs had lost the Mandate of Heaven. In real terms, there were many people of Korea that welcomed the change in the hope for a positive upturn to their nation's fortunes. Some would have ambitions of major national reforms, but General Yi himself did not believe that this was the way to go. General Yi would become the new king of a ruling dynasty. The dynasty would be called the Choson dynasty, whose name was an echo of possibly the earliest of Korean nations. General Yi would become known as King Taejo of Choson, and as King Taejo he made very little in the way of reforms as he believed that the infrastructure of Korea was correct and it was the individuals working within it who were actually causing the problems. The one thing that did seem to change as Korea became Choson was the proliferation of Confucianism. In ancient China, Confucianism encouraged individual discipline in society and could be described as less spiritualistic than Buddhism. It wasn't necessarily that you were required to be one thing or the other. You could observe Buddhism within a Confucian society. When the Song dynasty of China emerged in the 10th century, Confucianism developed a new surge of popularity where Confucius himself was revered like a deity. Referred to by historians as Neo-Confucianism, this upsurge in popularity reached Chosun Korea and characterised the change of dynasty in the peninsula. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the medieval period of Korea. And um, we did slightly change things from the original plan and I may go into more detail on that on the exclusive episode on, uh, on Spotify. But if you enjoy the podcast and you want to support the podcast, then visit our website and it's historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Click on the Patreon link 
where you can sign up to make a monthly contribution. You will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you will qualify for gifts and rewards. This week, we welcome to the History of the World podcast Illuminati, Steve Mittman. Welcome in, Steve, and thank you very much for supporting the project. If you want to access bonus material, and um, as, I, as I mentioned before, the, the special episode, and uh, if you want to listen to the podcast ad-free, then subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. And if you want to get in touch with the podcast, drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, it's going to be a History of the World podcast magazine episode. And um, it will be Christmas Day as well. So um, look forward to that. And uh, I think it will also be the last one of the year, won't it, uh, as a consequence, because the next full episode will be scheduled for New Year's Day, I think. So um, there you go. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And until next week, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.